I bet a lot of you have heard at some point the story of Christmas in 1914 during World War I. Um, the Christmas truce, it's sometimes called. The war was only five months old, and I think December 7th, the Pope, Pope Benedict at the time, he suggested, he sent out a circular uh, to the Allies and the Axis powers asking for a truce because just a ceasefire, a remembrance of Christmas, <clears throat> because every nation that was involved with that conflict had a Christian heritage. You can sometimes forget that. Every nation that was involved had a Christian heritage, so it seemed fitting, but the armies refused an official ceasefire. When Christmas Eve came, though, all along the Western Front, this was the line between the Axis and Allied powers, Christmas carols began breaking out through the night, merging out of the trenches. And there's general agreement in accounts of this that when dawn came, it was the German soldiers who took the initiative, stepped out of the trenches with no weapons, and began walking slowly across no man's land where the bodies of their comrades lay, walking towards the other trench. And then the British and the French forces at first thinking, thought it was a trick, but eventually, as they could hear them wishing them Merry Christmas, they got up, got out of the trenches and responded. And they met, they exchanged sweets, puddings, they sang Christmas carols that were common. This is Christendom, the last, the last taste of Christendom. They knew the same Christmas carols, so they sang them in their own language. They even played soccer. Among those that survived the war, there's a common recollection. These are the words of a German lieutenant, but he said how marvelously wonderful Yet how strange it was. It was a memory of something that had passed on. A last echo of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And it was never repeated. Nothing like that. Never repeated. It is revealing as much as it is fascinating. It is, it is fascinating. There were other ceasefires, and almost every conflict, every war has ceasefires. Other times when violence has stopped for a moment. But those, as we can see from this, those weren't, a ceasefire is not peace. It's the cessation of violence. But that moment on the Western Front reveals that peace isn't merely a stop to what is negative. It's not just a stop to turmoil. Peace requires the restoration of goodwill, of things as they ought to be. So it's not just an end to what troubles us. Peace needs to set things right. We can see that clearly in war. We can see it in its aftermath. 
But the lack of peace is evident in every, every human society all the time. Clearly evident in our society. It's part of human nature to strive, to work, to secure our own peace. We want peace. We really do. And we work towards it. But fallen human nature, this distortion of our nature as designed, means that each of us is striving to exercise our own rule around us. Striving to get peace on our terms. We become chief negotiator in the little kingdom that's around us. And the trouble is we find that others are not cooperating. You can think right now about where peace lacks around you. Others just won't cooperate with your terms. It's not only among our neighbors. We find it in every household. There's disagreement about what will bring us peace. We have arguments, dispute. So we strive, we struggle. Or increasingly, young people, I'm looking at you, we check out, we hide ourselves in a digital world where we can be in total control. So if we're honest and we tell the truth, we should always tell the truth. If we're, if we're honest about what humans are like, we can't escape the conclusion that we must be given we have to be given a common vision. We have to be gifted with a will to live that common vision. It's got to come from above us, not from one who shares our distortions. It has to come from above, from one greater than us. And truly, we know that real peace requires the presence, the reigning presence of the Lord who made us for himself. We can know those truths. We can know the truths and yet struggle mightily, struggle with surrendering our efforts to enforce our own peace terms on the world. We can know that stuff, and yet it's still a struggle. This reluctance, I'm going to say relative inability to surrender our personal demands of how things ought to be, that is where Israel found itself between the Testaments. That, that's the interim between when the prophets finally ceased, when the message from God ceased, and before the Messiah came. Even before everybody was carried off to Babylon, the la we talked about this last week, for a moment, the last king, Zedekiah, who was blinded after seeing his sons murdered, he attempted a rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar because he thought he could bring about Isaiah's prophecies, Jeremiah's prophecies. He thought he could make it happen. But it was after the captivity, after the exiles had returned and Israel had been reconstructed, a new temple had been rebuilt, that a long series of leaders pretended to messianic status. They followed in Zedekiah's steps. We can make peace. We can bring about the vision of peace. 
They would do it. Their continual failures, though, their obvious wickedness left God's people working through how can, how can, how can the prophecies actually come about? How can this vision happen? And so they entered a swirl of conflicting visions of what peace for Israel would be like. And so competing visions that were not given by God, that were not part of the prophecies, they were offered as the real hope. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, all groups within Israel, they each had their own version of how to establish this coming kingdom of peace where Israel would be the place that all the nations would come to. So when John the Baptist was born, Zechariah, his father, who was a priest, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what we read for that antiphonal reading. So if you have that, this is what, this is what the Spirit said. Into that, into that moment of competing visions, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Speaking from the Spirit. Look at the verb tense. The verb tense is, it has been accomplished. Praise the Lord, for he has visited. He has redeemed his people. He has raised up the Davidic king. It's not yet seen. This is before Jesus' birth. This is John the Baptist's birth. It's not yet seen, but because God has spoken it, it's declared as accomplished. This is done. He has done it. It's a sure thing. It's a certain hope because the Spirit is saying so. He's affirming that old hope given by the prophets. It's time. So what is the hope? It's the next part of the prophecy. It's that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. So saved from something to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It's a pretty simple vision as it comes across there. To be saved from enemies, to be saved, to be delivered from those who hate them. But, but that deliverance from oppression is for something. It's not just to be pulled out of that. It's not just negation again. It's for something, for the realization of God's promises to Abraham. To give mercy to those joining in his covenant. 
to give mercy, but mercy's for something too. In order to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him. So the hope isn't to just be saved from enemies through the might of the Messiah. The Christ will just crush all the other nations. It's not just to be saved from that. The chief object, the chief goal was restoration. The restoration of serving God in righteousness and holiness. So now, in that moment, whether Zechariah, he's holding his baby John, whether he can see that restoration in his mind or whether he's simply being an instrument for the Holy Spirit, we don't know. But with this vision in mind, with those words on his lips, restoration, the mercy of God given so the people can be holy and righteous, he turns to his baby, little John. He says, you, child. How strange would this be? You find yourself filled with vision from the Holy Spirit. You, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dawn where the day spring shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In other words, this, this prophecy of restoration is going to be fulfilled by one whose way you, little guy, are going to prepare there's going to come, one come behind you. You are going to be the king's herald. He's probably a very small baby. <laughs> You're going to be the king's herald. Calling God's people to prepare themselves to welcome him. Zechariah's prophecy is a beautiful encapsulation of Advent. If as we saw last week, Hope comes from receiving the vision of goodness that is to be, whether or not there's any evidence of it. Hope comes from receiving it as true from God. Then peace comes from living now in accordance with that good vision. So another way of saying that is peace is living in accordance with the king's vision the picture of the goodness he's given and embracing it and cooperating with his rule and his plans as they run their course. Peace is aligning with the king and his good hope. Peace is submitting to the authority of God's vision. And we see that it brings joy with it. It brings joy and participation in the love of the merciful God, the God who grants his mercy, who grants his favor, this gracious, gracious God. It's a glorious prophecy. 
Peace is coming. You can feel it now. You can experience it now. But it also pierces. This prophecy pierces. When we live in perpetual war with others and internal strife, peace comes with a cost. Peace comes with a cost. Did we ever think otherwise? Did we ever think seriously about peace and not, not acknowledge there was a cost? Zechariah prophesies that when the dawn from on high appears, bringing the light of God to those in darkness, those in the shadow of death, the advent of the way of peace, the coming of the way of peace, will require the forgiveness of sins. Sin stands in the way of our peace. And the tender mercy of God will be required to deal with it. This forgiveness, this tender mercy would ultimately come at the cost of the righteous branch himself. The king himself. The bringer of peace. The bringer who's going to restore all things and set the kingdom in order. His life is going to be the cost for everyone to enjoy that peace. The life of Jesus would have to be broken. The sacrificial blood would have to be given in order to settle the insurrection, in order to settle the rebellion of these very ones that he's come to restore. The king's own rebels have to be dealt with. He could call and say, bring the rebels before me and kill them. Rebellion has to be dealt with. And so he deals with it. Enjoyment of the vision of hope comes at a cost, and Jesus bears it. He bears it. Zechariah's prophecy also points towards an essential part of little John, grown up, now eating locusts and wearing rags. The pro John, Zechariah's prophecy points to an essential part of that grown up John's message. Proclaiming repentance. Jesus bears the cost of peace. That was always the way. John the Baptist knew it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus bears the cost. But God's peace is received by surrender to him. By surrender, by repentance. In Luke 3, the gospel, Timothy read for us, John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist, he was preparing Israel to receive the Christ through a corporate participation in repentance. All Israel, come out, receive the king. John was fulfilling prophecy 
to prepare the people for the king's forgiveness. One of the subtle messages of the Gospels, it comes up all through the Gospels, is that the common people were ready to receive the king. And yet Israel refused the king. How can that be? How is it that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him? The leaders, the leaders of Israel wouldn't repent. They didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. So they didn't turn to him to heal them. So if the invited guests wouldn't come to the banquet, he turned elsewhere and he would compel all the nations to come. To come in. This is the tragedy of Israel. That their hope was fulfilled. This hope, the prophetic vision, the, the hope that was offered, it was fulfilled. And yet, they didn't come. He offered his kingdom. He offered terms of peace. But because they had wrested control of the vision of peace and the vision of hope, they couldn't see him when he came. They chose a false hope. This is a risk for us as well. We may be operating under some assumption, operating under some vision of what our own peace ought to look like. And so we may miss when the Lord brings and offers his terms of peace to us. We may miss it when it's right there because it's not what we want. So let me state the obvious, the painful obvious. There is no peace without the king. There is no peace for those who try to seize control. The people of God can't receive a peace that doesn't include the king and his absolute, absolute rule. We don't get to negotiate terms of peace with the creator of the universe. We need his light. We need his rule. We need his ways to shine in our hearts to, in order to live according to this way of peace. So as the word himself, as the word says, he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. We can't get it without him. Sometimes... When a person's trying to avoid surrendering, and, and I don't mean surrendering to the, the, the saving work of Jesus. Sometimes I, I mean Christians. When we try to avoid surrendering to God about something, sometimes if it's someone in this congregation, you'll try to negotiate with me that's so strange. <laughs> Try to negotiate me with me to, to change the terms of peace. As if I have power to, to alter anything between you and God. I have never, will never have the power to alter the terms of peace. So trying to negotiate with me about what's true is not going to be helpful for any of us. 
I can't give peace. I can only point to the one who does and tell the truth about it. I can only point to the, the terms. That's what I'm doing now. Point to the terms. The king has offered them. Surrender unconditionally to the Lord of all. And because of the blood of him who offers forgiveness, you can have it. His total favor. Here in Advent, as we remember his coming to Israel to bring them peace, and as we look ahead to his glorious return, it, it's time for us to repent of our destructive false hopes. The false hopes, the false visions that don't include his absolute rule. It's time to cry out. It's always time to cry out. There's no peace without repentance, without turning to the Lord. And good news is, he stands there open-armed. Open-armed. He comes to us. He advents. And so we must open to him. Give way to him. Receive his offered peace. But it comes on his terms for our good, for abundant, flourishing life. That's what he wants. I'm going to finish with a story. I remember vividly talking with the, the most religious person I've ever had extended conversation with. And he was in deep turmoil. He had done everything to attain peace, everything he knew to get it. He prayed five times a day. He journeyed to Mecca in Saudi Arabia multiple times. He gave alms. He fasted in Ramadan. This is a Muslim, obviously. He was doing everything in his knowledge to attain peace. He's far more disciplined than, than I, I can even imagine myself being. But he was despairing because he had no peace. It was turned down, turned in. The note of hopelessness as he shared, he's enumerating, and I did this, and I did this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And he didn't hope that those things would save him. That's not how Islam works. But he had some expectation, some, some hope that it would bring some peace. Now, even for Christians, the problem can be similar. We know Jesus as king. But we often want to live on our terms. And our expectations are built not on what God has said, but on the terms that we've established. So we're not, we're not enumerating prayers and journeys and alms. But we may have some sort of unwritten list. If I do these things... I will get peace. 
if I am very religious. Peace comes where and when the king rules. He is the bringer of it. He brings it to our hearts. So I want to say this. Later this week, when you find yourself in turmoil about something, take a moment and welcome the king into that moment. Welcome his presence. He is the one who brings it. When you're in an argument with your spouse, when you're upset with your kids, take a pause, just take a moment and acknowledge Jesus Christ is here. He's the king. Something happens in that moment. Something changes. He is our peace. Lord, we... We are of, we're made of the stuff of earth. And you know that we continue to be bent back to, we're bent back to our first rebellion, the rebellion of man, to take control and to demand things be done as we wish they would. In this Advent, Lord, we ask that you would work in us. Turn the lights on. Lord, let us know that you are there. I pray you'd give us the will, deep inside, the will to welcome you as our King. In the name of Jesus, we pray.